0: This episode is brought to you by Adele Golf and we're gonna talk single length irons. If you've ever wondered how a single length four iron goes just as far as a standard length, well, I have as well. So we asked David Adele and he explained.
1: The main attributes, the single length that provide the benefit in distance that is the misconception based on its being shorter is the fact that the mass of the head is generally about 30 grams to 35 grams heavier than a standard 4-iron. And the 2-inch difference in club head speed is minimal compared to the amount of force that's being applied to the golf ball in a more perpendicular manner than a lofted golf club that compresses the ball. And with this face flex technology and more mass, that golf ball is going to spin and get height and get distance.
0: Adele Golf makes amazing single length irons and you should check them out. They have an amazing demo program so you can test them out before purchasing. You can head over and get all the details at golfsciencelab.com slash Adele. We have a bunch of podcasts, videos, diving into single length irons. And if you do get a set, tag us, Golf Science Lab, Adele Golf, and a picture on Twitter and Instagram. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab Podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking to leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Just a couple of weeks ago, the World Scientific Congress of Golf took place. It's where individuals who've been doing golf research share their studies. They present them in front of really anybody in the industry, other researchers, golf instructors, folks that work at different companies. And it's a really fascinating event. I was lucky enough to attend in 2016 in St. Andrews, really enjoyed it. And I want to share a bit of a recap of what happened in this episode. And I want to first talk about golf science because it doesn't have to be intimidating. It doesn't have to be something that is not worthwhile for everyone. If you're a golfer, if you're a coach, golf sciences can be very approachable. It can be very applicable and covers a broad spectrum of
1: things in golf. Most people who think of golf research think of, you know, the biomechanics and the technique of the swing. And, And while that's a big part of what we do, it certainly does not make up the bulk of what we do, I mean, you know, we, we do have things like, uh, you know, psychology and nutrition, those kinds of things, as well as, you know, in recent in recent congresses, and this one was no different, some more focus on on player pathways, how to become a tour player, if you will, some of the roadblocks to becoming a successful player, things like tournament preparation, the development of life skills in junior golf programs. So there are some topics and some, and some studies that are happening now that I would say haven't always been really in the main sort of golf research part of it all and no question this year you know there was a number of presentations on equipment and some of the new technologies around that so i think i think the term golf research is quite it has become quite wide in scope and isn't really all about quantitative data either there's a fair amount of qualitative research being done in golf as well so i think again as i mentioned i think it was a really good balance this year of of different topics and and um really trying to expand that definition of what golf research is
0: that is glenn kendari he is the conference chair for the congress this congress was held just outside of vancouver in abbotsford british
1: columbia it was a really exciting few days uh in uh, one of the most beautiful parts of canada in the interior of uh, british columbia in the fraser valley i think you know, we were around 100 delegates, which we were pleased with, and uh, had representation from 11 countries, which was fantastic. And they really had a chance to experience some very Canadian uh, parts of the country, if you will. And I think they were quite impressed with that. And I think, you know, the Congress as a whole continues to really kind of develop and mature. And and to see some of the some of the new content, some of the new research and studies that are happening was was really really good. And I think we had a nice balance of PGA and LPGA members there, along with researchers and. I think, you know, the abstracts that we had, which were near 50, um, I think really spoke to a lot of different people who who were attending as delegates.
0: And unfortunately I couldn't make it, but I've spoken with a bunch of folks who attended and I really hope to attend this next one that they have planned.
1: A little change to the traditional format of the Congress happening every two years. So, one of the things this Group of conference organizers have noted, as well as the board of directors of the World Scientific Congress, is some of the conflicts with other major sporting events in golf and outside of golf. Frankly, like the Olympics, uh, etc. In terms of delegate participation and researcher participation, so the next Congress uh, will be in 2021. So it is a three-year gap between now and the next Congress, and then it will go every every second year uh, following that. So there is an expression of interest document or a template that, it, that is available people can definitely get hold of me should they be interested in in hosting the world scientific congress in 2021 so that's that's probably some of the the latest breaking news i suppose on on the actual congress and, and where we're moving
0: so since we weren't there i reached out and we have a couple episodes here that we're going to do to get the insights into what research was most interesting some things that stood out and really look at some highlights today we've got sasho mckenzie he's joined us quite a few times on the show he is a researcher in the biomechanics field we've done a number of episodes that if you enjoy him that you should go back and listen to and then next week we're going to have on nikki lum who's going to go in depth on her study which is on practice and learning I really, really enjoyed learning about this, and I, I can't wait to share it with you next week. But as far as today, we're going to bounce around with a number of different highlights from Sasho. I'm going to go over his keynote, some research from Ping, and a few other things, and I'd love to hear what is most interesting for you. So shoot a tweet at Golf Science Lab. I would love to hear what you liked the most as far as this research and what you want to learn more about. All right, let's get to it.
2: My keynote was uh, pretty heavy on the technical side. You know, the World Scientific Congress of Golf is, is a blend of hard science, you know, uh, and as well, kind of stuff that's a little more practical. That you can pull out in the lesson tee, and mine was certainly towards the uh, scientific end of the continuum. What I did was I I wanted to to look at the causes of club head speed from a mechanistic standpoint. So I started off the talk kind of saying, hey. Everybody in the crowd, can you list some some variables, some things in the swing that um, lead to increased clubhead speed? The stuff you would not only read about in research papers, but see in the Golf Channel. You know, and it was great. People throw out, well, lag. Yeah, exactly. Okay, lag. You know, you want more lag. All right. What about um, you know uh, the kinematic sequence? Great. People threw that out. And hey, center pressure patterns. You know, there's some stuff from Ball and Best. So, you know, I was trying to paint the picture that it was kind of all very correlational, I'm not necessarily looking at things from a, from a mechanical, mechanistic, cause and effect deterministic standpoint. It was kind of the research, it's kind of all these random little bits of studies, is kind of a complex puzzle, and we're just getting pieces of the puzzle all over the place. Tough to put them together. Not a shot at any of the individual research projects. I've certainly done, done a few of them myself. But more, let's see if we can take a more mechanical, mechanistic approach. And it kind of followed that with a, a quote from Sean Foley from an interview he did with a, for a golf science journal a few years ago where he said, impact is true science, I'm paraphrasing here, and the rest of the swing is just a matter of opinion. So I thought, you know, there's a, a very prominent instructor who, you know, prides himself, I believe, in, in the science side of things and getting things correct. But based on his survey of the research and, you know, understanding stuff, that it's pretty strong phrasing from my perspective to say that impact is true science, but the rest of the golf swing is his opinion. So I wanted to show that actually the same way that the club head and ball interact, the same physical principles apply to the way that the golfer and the club interact. So I looked at it from a work energy perspective, something that we talked about in the, the little uh, mini lesson I gave you. To try and show, hey, w- what are the components of work that the golfer does in the club and which of those allows us to predict the most differences in club at speed? So, if I looked at how uh, the work, the way you do work on the club, Cordy, versus me, and we've got seven miles per hour difference in club at speed, what is it about the way you're doing work that allows you to get seven more miles per hour than me? And, and what it comes down to is, <laughs> you know, that nothing super uh, groundbreaking in this sense, but, um, The average force that you apply to the grip during the downswing is the biggest predictor of differences in clubhead speed between players. Then also, you know, the next one along that was the length of the hand path. So if you want to hit the ball further, you need to apply more force to the grip along the direction of that hand path during the swing. And it's also very helpful to increase the length of that hand path. So those, those were kind of the, the take-homes. And then I kind of had some, uh, some other interesting asides that, you know, gravity actually does, does nothing. If you look at gra- the work that gravity does in the swing to predict club head speed, it's actually does um, um, an, an overall negative amount of work. And, and the reason for that is if you think of the, the address position, the club actually sits lower if you're driving a golf ball in the address position. The center mass of the club is lower than it is at impact. We kind of have our hands about 10 centimeters higher at impact and the driver head seems to be, you know, a little bit higher off the ground at impact. So pretty easy to see that actually the gravity does negative work. It does You have to do more work against gravity to get the club up to the top of the backswing than gravity does on the way down. So you can kind of rule out gravity as a, a reason for being able to change club at speed. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of a high level overview is kind of some more technical stuff about about statistical modeling in the in the talk, but yeah, that's basically it, so you know you can look at uh, hey, why does someone like um Tony Finnell have the same club head speed as Bob Watson? Very different lengths of swings, but when it comes down to it, tony finnell has has a has a pretty high average force that he's applying during that short downswing.
0: does this change the way that we prioritize what to work on to gain speed
2: in any way? Yeah, I think so try to give you another specific example. So the four ways we do work in the club are the, the length of the hand path, the average force along the hand path, the torque we apply to the club, or specifically the couple, and the angle the club rotates through. So let's say you've got someone like J.B. Holmes who doesn't get the shaft to parallel with his driver, right? or, or, or Tony Finno's another example. What my findings showed is that you're actually not really going to have much of an increase in club head speed at all by taking G B Holmes, keeping his hand location and space the same, and dropping, having him increase that wrist cock angle and dropping that club now down to parallel. Even though you're like, look, he's reached parallel now. We should see a big jump in, in club head speed. You won't. Increasing that rotation angle really doesn't separate out low and high club head speed players. But the distance that his hands have traveled in the backswing, that, that does. So, you know, you don't. You you wouldn't necessarily want someone to go to parallel and expect an increase in clubhead speed if that if by getting to parallel they haven't changed their position of their hands. So you know, so there's there's maybe a, a kind of a practical thing you could apply. You know, okay, yeah, you you want a longer hand path, but you don't necessarily have to increase the, the you know the wrist cock angle at the at the the um, end of the back. Swing. There was some pretty interesting stuff, I think, coming out of Ping. You know, I could briefly discuss, like, uh, I thought um, Chris Brody, who is uh, Mark Brody's son, who uh, now works at Ping, did a neat analysis of the influence of grip size on driver performance. Um, so that, you know, some kind of practical... I, I love when practical questions are answered by good science. So Ping was kind of, had a long-held belief that as you Go up in grip size, that tends to result in um, more fading of the golf ball because you leave the face more open at impact. So bigger grip, higher tendency for slicing. I and mean, they they've seen that in some of their their player tests, you know, over the years. So like okay, this makes sense. But what they would do in those studies is they would say, right, you know, we're changing other club parameters. here. So you put on a bigger grip, we're adding mass. So let's keep the same swing weight. Let's add mass to the head as well. So now we've got um, small grip, medium grip, big grip, but all these clubs are at you know, D3 swing weight. Same swing weight, but to keep that same swing weight. Now they've increased the mass of the club quite a bit. So you know, I I just finished doing some research with Ping, looking at um, just changing grip mass, and it seemed to suggest that that has an influence. And so what what they did was this neat kind of follow-up study to all the previous research, where they said, right, let's increase grip size. But we're going to do it without changing the mass of the grip or the overall mass of the club. And what they found was all these differences now disappeared. So there was no systematic difference in face angle delivery. There was no systematic difference in, in ball flight. So, current thought right now is that um, changing grip size, you know, subsequently change mass as well, really doesn't have a clear systematic change on performance. Certainly at the individual level there might be some stuff going on. But so so that was really interesting. My thought, kind of a practical take home that um, you know, hey, if you are gonna change your grip size and you add mass, expect to leave the face more open, but if you can, you know, get one of those larger grips that is lighter as well, so you keep your grip mass around fifty grams, then you don't necessarily need to expect to see a, a change in performance, which I think it's important for, for, say, older golfers who have arthritis. You know, uh, maybe like the bigger grip for different reasons. But a lot of golfers slice, so you might want to go with a bigger grip that's that also doesn't increase mass. So you kind of get the best of both worlds: a more comfortable hold, but you're not increasing your chances of, of uh, slicing the golf ball. Matt Bridge had an interesting study in, in the sense uh, overall that it was like, hey, we, what are these ideas that people have musculoskeletal limitations? You know, so we see them standing there and it's like, oh, this guy's got a bad posture and we'd like to change their, And then this leads to a poor, you know, posture in their golf setup, which then leads to a bad result. So can we, you know, do some corrective exercises to improve their posture and now that it's improved, this should transfer to improved performance on the golf course. Um, so they looked at, or Matt looked at, I can't remember who his colleagues were with him, but they looked at forward head posture. It was kind of um, through one of the screens out there in golf that was kind of checked as being a negative. So they did corrective exercises and with a group of golfers. Uh, they had a, a control group and a treatment group. And the exercises... Did work. So they, uh, in the treatment group, they improved their, their posture, but they saw no change in, in performance. Either, you know, when they set up to the ball, did that forward head posture change in the golf swing? Did the performance improve? No. So kind of, um, you know, just a, you know, only one study, but kind of uh, says that, hey, you know, maybe that, that area deserves a little more attention that we shouldn't be too quick. To to jump to the conclusion that, that changing someone's musculoskeletal you know constraints that they have will necessarily you know make its way into into the golf swing to see performance. Probably also going to need to be told, hey, now that you've got this um, improved range of motion or improved posture, we need to now still make those mechanical changes and remind you of them when you're swinging. It's not going to be this automatic pill. You know, hey, we improve it and it's going to just translate into the golf swing. So you, you still might need some biomechanical intervention there, if, if that's what you're trying to improve.
0: Did he find any way to say it's on average five yards shorter, on an average of percentage shorter than than typical?
2: Yeah, it was meaningful. Um, I would have to uh, double check the numbers, but that's my takeaway was that it was, you know, like meaningful in that at least you'd be playing at least a club difference into the green. Um, okay. might have been more than that. Um, but yeah, it was certainly worthwhile keeping your ball dry. <laughs>
0: yeah. Very cool. I mean good research from Ping. Both of those studies are are pretty yeah. sweet. I like it.
2: Yeah. You know the another I, I really enjoyed maybe moving away from the hard science but I really enjoyed uh, Will Robbins. I know you're um, friends with him. You've had yeah. some podcasts with him. He did a great keynote on the, on the last day and he kind of um, it was more about uh, the perspective you take and then it kind of uh, creating a, a, a new mindset for how you approach the game of golf. And he kind of started with, you know, a player comes to him and he, he asks them questions, once to really get to know you know why they're coming for a lesson. And he says that if you ask why the person, why enough, you know, hey, wh- why do you want a lesson? while I slice the ball? And I I, you know and I don't want to slice the ball. Okay, well, you know, why don't you want to slice the ball? Okay, well blah blah blah. And if you go follow this chain, they ask why enough, eventually everybody just wants to have fun and shoot lower scores. So it's not necessarily he would say it's not necessarily that they want to slice less. Really what it is is they just want to shoot lower scores. They'd actually, whether they believe it or not, will be fine slicing the ball if they shot lower. And so that's kind of his approach. And then he kind of uh, you know does a lot of a lot of playing lessons, a lot of stuff in groups, and really changes people's or golfers' perspectives on, you know, what they should anticipate for their abilities. An, an interesting example he gave, he'd ask a, a player, okay, you could be a good player, I'm a single handicapper and say, Hey, um, you know, what what do you you've got a four hundred and fifty yard par four? what are your expectations here? Well, you know, it would be, it'd be great to make a par, but I won't be that disappointed in a bogey, you know, so four would be great. Five would be, yeah. Okay. Not that bad. Okay. <laughs> Next question. You have a 450 yard par five. What are you thinking? Well, great opportunity for an Eagle and I better walk away with the birdie, <laughs> you know, So it's the exact same hole, but just because it has a different par, all of a sudden the golfer's mindset completely changes and he would say, look, that shouldn't change your mindset. You're kind of focusing on the wrong things. So I, that really, um, I thought, was very useful information for, for everybody. And He's had a, a lot of success really approaching the average player, not from a you know, mechanical standpoint, but um, from this, this mindset approach, which I thought was really fascinating. I have been doing some research, some putting research on the influence of putter design on performance with the head of innovation, I think Eric Henrikson, and we did a little study looking at toe hang versus face balance putter. So, effectively, where is the center of mass of the putter head relative to the shaft axis? And found that pretty clear result, playing a toe hang putter tends to result in golfers leading the face more open. So if you are having trouble hitting pushes, try to move to, towards a uh, center shafted, uh, a more face-balanced putter. And if you're hitting pulls, hey, maybe maybe a, just a switch to a toe hang would help you out. And he he kind of, you know, we're kind of like, hey, well, where's this coming from? You know, what are, the, what are the reasons for this? And he, Ping's got an on-site historian, so he going and kind of talk to this guy about all the research and all the, the things that the Carson Solheim has been, you know, figuring out long before anybody else. And there was this concept of a, it's called a balnomic shaft. And the idea, and Eric was into some, fast, went into some fascinating research, even all the way, you know, into the 1800s about um, having shafts being bent so that the axis actually goes through the either the center of the head in this um, this original balnomic ping design actually bends the shaft so at impact that shaft axis goes through the ball hence the balnamic concept but you can't have bent shafts that was a that was an issue that the USGA or the RNA took care of at some point in history but the compromise was pistol grip. So the shaft doesn't change, but the grip has a different shape up by the, uh, the top hand. And effectively what that does is it puts that axis of the, the grip at the top hand. If you're playing a toe hang putter, it now makes that, that grip pass through uh, close or right through the, the center of gravity of the, of the putter head. So effectively making it, making that toe hang putter play more like a face balanced. So Eric set up a study, took a toe hang putter, had a straight grip and a pistol grip, and found, sure enough, uh, that if you take that toe hang putter, but you play with a pistol grip on it, that you have a better chance on squaring the face. I phrased that wrong, but you're more likely to, there's going to be a difference in face angle at impact. Pistol grip's going to have a more square face, a straight grip on a toe hang putter is going to tend to leave the face more open. So it's 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 you know kind of uh, just kind of starting to scratch the surface in some of this research. You know, there's more questions about why. You know, what if you have you know how much of that that angle of the pistol grip is good? What happens if you actually have that uh, that grip actually passing through the toe side of the putter? You know, so you have a a face balance putter with a pistol grip. Where where does that put you? But certainly, some clear systematic differences in in changing the way that the golfer inputs those forces and torques to the shaft, changing that axis that they're applying those forces and torques, seems to have a a meaningful um, impact
0: this was fun we got a little sneak peek into some of the research presented got to feel like we were there and learning about some of the, the latest golf research i enjoyed this thank you Sasha for hopping on and joining glenn kendari thank you as well thank you for sharing this awesome event for sure if you're listening to this, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening so you can stay up to date on all of the episodes that we have coming out. So much good stuff here. Really appreciate your support, whether that's leaving a review, whether that's telling a friend to listen next time you're out playing golf with them, sharing something you've learned on the show with them, or whatever you can do to help spread this message of we are trying to help folks improve, to play better golf, and to be better people. And if you want to become a Golf Science Lab Insider, completely free. Our newsletter, The Dispatch, is part of that. Head over to golfsciencelab.com slash insider. Sign up there and get all the content first, up to date on exactly what we are doing. And this episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me at Cordy Walker on Twitter and was edited mixed and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions.